Section two of the Rover, Volume one, number twenty three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Faith Ann Gibson. The Rover, Volume one, number twenty three. Edited by Seba Smith and Lawrence Labrie. Section two, The Lovers' Quarrel by Miss Jewsbury. I wish I could describe the young lady, Sybil. She was rather tall than otherwise, and her head was carried with a toss of the prettiest pride I ever saw. In truth, there was a supernatural grace in her figure, by which she was in duty bound to be more lofty in her demeanour than other people. Her eyes were of a pure, dark hazel, and seemed to wander from the earth as though they were surprised how they happened to drop out of the skies. And the sweet, high and mighty witchery that sported round her threatening lips inspired one with a wonderful disposition to fall down and worship her. It was, of course, not to be expected that such a strangely gifted lady should be so easily contented with her cavaliers as those who were not gifted at all, and Sybil very properly allowed it to be understood that she despised the whole race. She likewise allowed it to be understood that, the world being by no means good enough for her, she conceived the best society it afforded to be her own wilful cogitations, and that she meant to pass the whole of her pretty life in solitude and meditation. People conjectured that she was in love and too proud to show it, and Sybil surmised that they were vastly impertinent, and by no means worth satisfying. There was a small grotto by the lake that wound before the old arched windows of the hall. A world of fine foliage was matted fantastically above and around it, so as to exclude every intruder but the kingfisher, who plunged meteor-like on his golden prey, and vanished in the shade before he was well seen. And an endless variety of woodbines leaped from branch to branch, swinging their dewy tendrils in the air, and showering fragrance upon the green moss beneath, or stealing round the rustic pinnacles, like garlands twined by Cupid for his favourite hiding-place. It was in this choice retreat that the Lady Sibyl chose to forget the world in which she was born, and imagine that for which she seemed to have been created, and in this world, without manifesting any particular symptoms of exhaustion, excepting that she had grown a little paler and more slender, she continued for three whole years. On the third anniversary of her resolution, she knew it was the third, because the said resolution happened to have been made on the same day that her wild cousin, who had earned for himself the title of Child Wilful, chose for his departure to the wars. On the third anniversary, as on all other days, Sybil again tripped down the chase to live in paradise till tea-time. But, not as on other days, the noble summer sunset seemed to have stained her cheek with a kindred hue. Ere she reached her wilderness, she looked back, again and again, at the hall, slackened her pace that it not appear hurried, and gazed as long upon the swans and water-lilies as though they really occupied her thoughts. Meanwhile the flower of the fox-hunting chivalry were carousing with her father in the banqueting-room, and furnishing their glasses to her health. The most mighty and censorious dames of the land were seen stalking up and down the terrace, as stately and as stiff as the peacocks clipped out of the yew-trees at either end of it. Sybil seemed to have lost the faculty of despising them, and was half afraid that her desertion would be thought strange. As she stood, irresolute whether to go on or turn back, she was startled by a voice close by, and the blood leapt in a deeper crimson to her cheek. "'Sibyl! Dear Sibyl!' it exclaimed. "'Wilt thou come, or must I fetch thee, before the whole posse of them?' Sibyl tossed her head and laughed, with an agitated look, which was meant to be indifferent, strolling carelessly into the shade, just in time to prevent the intruder from putting his threat into action. It was a light, well-made cavalier, with black moustaches and ringlets, and a high-born eye and forehead, which could have looked almost as proud as Sibyl's. 
as for his accomplishments the fine frenchified slashing of his costume and the courageous manner in which he assaulted a lady's hand bespoke him a wonder and so my gallant cousin said sybil with a voice which was a little out of breath and with a feeble effort to extricate her fingers and so you have brought your valour back to besiege my citadel again sweet arrogance is it not the day three thousand years on which we parted and did i not promise to be here at sunset i believe you threatened me that you would pray have you run away from battle to be as good as your word and pray did you always consider it a threat or did you tell me that this grotto should be your hermitage to my return and pray for a third time do not be inquisitive and trouble yourself to let go of my hand and sit down on that seat over the way and tell me what you have been doing these three years i will as you desire take both your hands and the other half of your chair and tell you as you surmise that i have been thinking of you till the thought became exceedingly troublesome and now oblige me by telling me whether you are as proud as ever since you lost your beauty or whether you have ever mustered humility to drop a tear for the mad blood which i have shed in toiling to be worthy such a mighty lady sybil laughed and snatched her hand away from him to draw it across her eyes dear sybil he continued in a gentler tone and has not that wild heart changed in three years and has not such an age of experience made our boy and girl flirtation a folly to be amended and do i find you the same excepting far more lovely the same perverse being who would not have given her wayward prodigal for the most dismally sensible lord of the creation often as i have feared i have had a little comforter which told me you could not change see sybil your miniature half given half stolen at our last parting it has been my shield in a dozen fights has healed with its smile as many wounds it has asked me if this was a brow whereon to register deceit if these were the lips to speak it if these were the eyes as i live they are weeping even now she did not raise him from her bosom but answered with a smile of feigned mortification that she thought it was very impertinent to take such minute observations i too have had my comforter she said drawing the fellow miniature from her bosom and holding it playfully before his eyes it has been my shield against a dozen follies it has warned me to benefit by sad experience it has asked me if this was the brow whereon to register anything good if these were the lips to speak it if these were the eyes as i live they are conceited even now but have you indeed kept my picture so close to your heart do you indeed think that your old rival sir lubin of the golden dell would have given me a farthing for it did you ever try him oh child wilful can you change countenance at such a name even now no i did not try him and for you are a stranger and must be indulged i will tell you wherefore i would not have given it to him for his head not for as many of them as would have built a tower to yonder moon so now see if you can contrive to be jealous of him nay you shall not touch it do you remember how often when it pleased you to be moody you threatened to take it from me no more of that sweet sybil and will you never counterfeit a headache to hide your displeasure when i dance with sir dunce or gallop with sir gosling no never sybil and will you never take leave of me for ever and return five minutes afterward to see how i bear it never while i live why then i give you leave to ask my father's leave to stay a whole week at the hall for i have a great deal to say to you when i can think of it i will ask him for yourself sybil no no sir child you will not do any such thing when you went from hence it was with a college character which was by no means likely to ingratiate you with reasonable people whatever it may have done with other folks and you must not talk to my father of the treasured sibyl till you are better acquainted with him talk of ploughs and politics as much as you please make it appear that 
now the wars are over, there is some chance of turning your sword into a pruning-hook, and yourself into an accomplished squire, and then, and then, alas, for the high-minded Sybil. It was not long afterward that Child Wilful, to the great surprise of Sybil, arrived at the hall in hot haste from foreign parts. He had always been a favorite for his liveliness, and was, indeed, almost as much liked as abused. The old lord took him by the hand, with a comical expression of countenance, which seemed to inquire how much mischief he had done, and the old ladies thought him vastly improved by travel, and awfully like a great warrior. The only persons to whom his presence was not likely to be strikingly agreeable were a few round-shouldered suitors of Sybil, who, in common with the country squires in general, were largely gifted with the blessings of fleet horses and tardy wits. Among these stood preeminent Sir Lubin of the Golden Dell. He was a tall man, with not a bad figure, and really a handsome face, though the dangerous tendency of the first was somewhat marred by the peculiar ideas of the graces, and the latter was perfectly innocuous from an undue economy of expression. Altogether, Sir Lubin was a very fine camel. He was a man of much dignity, always preserving a haughty silence when he did not exactly know what to say, and very properly despising those whom he could not hope to outshine. Thus it was that the meeting between Sir Lubin and Child Wilful was very similar to that between Ulysses and the ghost of Ajax. Had this been all the mortification which the child was doomed to undergo, he, he might perhaps have contrived to bear it with fortitude. But Sybil had subjected him to the task of obtaining a good character, and his trials were insupportable. In the first place he had to tell stories of sacked cities and distressed virgins at the tea-table till he became popular enough with the maiden aunts to be three parts out of his mind, for Sybil was all the time compelled to endure the homage of her other lovers. It is true that her keen wit could no more enter their double-blocked skulls than the point of her needle could have penetrated the Macedonian phalanx. But then each villain fixed his eyes upon her with all the abstracted expression of a bull's eye in a target, and seemed so abominably happy that the sight was excruciating. Sometimes, too, Sir Lubin would muster brains to perceive that he was giving pain, and would not do his best to increase it, by whispering in her ear, with a confidential smile, some terrible nothing, for which he deserved to be exterminated while to mend the matter the old ladies would speak upon the elegance of his manner and hint that Sybil was evidently flattered by his attention, because she seemed too happy to be scornful, and had lost all her taste in solitude. They would undoubtedly make a very handsome couple, and the child was appealed to whether he did not think that they would have a very fine family. In the second place, his opinion of ploughs and politics, on which love had taught him to discourse but too successfully, made him a fixture at the punch-bowl, while Sir Lupin and his tribe profaned Sybil's hand in country dances as long as they had breath for a plunge. It, it moreover left him ample opportunity to negotiate with the ants upon the arrangement of her plans for the next day, when he was still condemned to admire some new farm or ride ten miles to rejoice with his host over a wonderful prize bullock. Sometimes, too, the old lord would apologize for taking him away by observing that it was better to leave Sybil to her lovers, for it was time that she should take up with some one of them, and the presence of third parties might abash her. In the third place, when he retired to bed to sum up all the pleasures of the day, it was never quite clear to him that Sybil did not expose him to more disquietude than was absolutely necessary. It might indeed be proper that her attachment to him should not be too apparent, till he was firmly established in grace, seeing that all his merit was the only thing that could be put in the scale against the finest glebe in the country. But then could she not appear sufficiently careless about him, without being so unusually complacent to such a set of louts? If his presence made her happy, there was no necessity to give them license to presume to be happy likewise, and besides, she might surely find some moments for revisiting her grotto instead of uniformly turning from his hasty whispers with, 
"'It is better not.' It was not so formerly, and it was very reasonable to suppose that her three years' constancy had been sustained by some ideal picture of what he might turn out, in which she was now disappointed. He could not sleep. His restless fantasy continually beheld her bright eyes looking tenderness upon the wooden face of Sir Lubin. He turned to the other side and was haunted by a legion of young Lubins, who smiled upon him with Sybil's looks till he almost groaned aloud. In the morning he came down with a hag-ridden countenance, which made people wonder what was the matter with him, and Sybil asked with her look of ineffable archness whether he was experiencing a return of his headaches. Time rolled on very disagreeably. The child grew every day paler and more popular. The old ladies gave him more advice, and the old lord gave him more wine, and Sybil grew mortified at his distrust, and Sir Lubin grew afraid of his frown. And one half of the hall could not help being sorry, and the other half were obliged to be civil. Ajax and Ulysses had stepped into each other's shoes, and Sybil, to keep the peace, was obliged to accede to an interview in her little boudoir. It was a fine, honey-dropping afternoon. The sweet south was murmuring through the lattice among the strings of the guitar, and the golden fish were sporting till they almost flung themselves out of their crystal globe. It was just the hour for everything to be sweet and harmonious. But Sybil was somewhat vexed, and the child was somewhat angry. He was much obliged to her for meeting him, but he feared that he was taking her from more agreeable occupations, and he was, moreover, alarmed lest her other visitors should want some one to amuse them. He merely wished to ask if she had any commands to his family, for whom it was time he should think of setting out, and when he had obtained them he would no longer trespass upon her condescension. Sybil leant her cheek upon her hand, and regarded him patiently until he had done. "'My commands,' she gravely said, "'are of a confidential nature, and I cannot speak of them if you sit so far off.' As she tendered her little hand, her features broke through their mock ceremony into a half-smile, and there was an enchantment about her which could not be withstood. "'Sybil!' he exclaimed. "'Why have you taken such pains to torment me? "'And why have you so ill-attended to the injunctions which I gave you? "'Ill! Heaven and earth! "'Have I not laboured to be agreeable till my head is turned topsy-turvy?' "'Oh, yes, and hindsight before as well, for it is anything but right. "'But did I tell you to pursue this laudable work with fuming and frowning, "'and doubting and desperation, till I was in agony lest you should die of your exertion, "'and leave me to wear the willow?' "'The cavalier stated his provocation with much eloquence. "'Dear Sybil,' he continued, "'I have passed a sufficient ordeal. "'If I really possess your love, let me declare mine at once, "'and send these barbarians about their business.' or rather be sent about your own, if you have any, for you cannot suppose that the specimen which you have given of your patient disposition is likely to have told very much in your favour. Then why not teach them the presumption of their hopes, and tell them that you despise them? Because they are my father's friends, and because whatever their hopes may be, they will probably wait for encouragement before they afford me an opportunity of giving my opinion thereupon. But has there been any necessity to give them so much more of your time, so many more of your smiles than you have bestowed upon me? And is it you who asks me this question? Oh, is it possible to meet our attentions to those we love with the same indifference which we use toward the rest of the world? Would nothing, do you think, no tell-tale countenance, no treacherous accent betray the secret which it is our intent to maintain? Unkind to make poor Sybil's pride confess so much. The cavalier did not know whether he ought to feel quite convinced. He counted the rings upon the fingers, which were still locked in his own, three times over. Sybil, he said at last, I cannot bear them to triumph over me, even in their own bright fancies. 
If you are sincere with me, let us anticipate the slow events of time. Let us seek happiness by the readiest means, and trust me, if it is difficult to obtain consent to our wishes, you are too dear to despair of pardon for having acted without it. And you would have me fly with you? Sybil shrank from the idea. Her pride was no longer assumed in sport. You do well to reproach me with the duplicity which I have practised. It is but just to suppose that she who has gone so far would not scruple to make the love which has been lavished upon her the inducement for her disobedience, that the pride which has yielded so much would be content to be pursued as a fugitive and to return as a penitent. Then, Sybil, you do not love me. I am not used to make assurances of that kind, any more than I am inclined to submit to the charge of deceit. Methinks, Lady Sybil, he replied, with somewhat of bitterness, that you very easily take offence to-night. It is certainly better to be free from one engagement before we enter upon another. Sybil's heart beat high, but she did not speak. It is possible I may have mistaken your reasons for enjoining me to silence, for it is, no doubt, advisable that your more eligible friends should have the opportunity of speaking first. Sybil's heart beat higher, and the tears sprang to her eyes, but her head was turned away. "'We have stayed too long,' she said, with an effort at composure. "'I thank you, Lady Sybil,' he replied, rising haughtily to depart, for allowing me to come to a right understanding. And now—her anger never had been more than a flash. She could hardly believe him serious, and if he was, he would soon repent. And now—she interrupted him, relapsing into her loveliest look of raillery. Child Wilful would be glad of his picture again? You certainly will oblige me by restoring it. Why do you not ask Sir Lupin for it? Lady Sybil, I am serious, and I must beg to remark that it can be but an unworthy satisfaction to retain it for your boast to your new lovers. I do not see that there is anything to boast of in it. The face is not a particularly handsome one, and as for him for whom it is meant, he has never made a figure in any history excepting his own letters. Here is one in my own dressing-case. I pray you stand still now while I read over the wondrous exploits which you performed in your last battle, for I think you must have looked just as you do now. There is no saying whether his resolution would have been firm enough to persist in his dire demand, had not the Lady Sibyl's attendant at that moment entered with Sir Lubin's compliments, and it was past the hour when she was engaged to ride with him. Child Wilful's heart was armed with a thicker coat of mail than ever and his lips writhed into a bitter smile. "'Do not let me detain you, Lady Sybil,' he said. "'Perhaps your gentlewoman will be good enough to find me the picture among your cast-off ornaments.' This was rather too much, to be exposed in her weakest point to the impertinent surprise of her servant. "'Nay, nay,' she replied in confusion. "'Have done for the present. If you ask me for it to-morrow, I will return it.' "'I shall not be here to-morrow, and it is hardly compatible with Lady Sybil's pride to retain presents which the donor would resume.' Her anger was a little indignant. His rejoinder was a little more provoking. The maid began to laugh in her sleeve, and Sybil felt herself humiliated. It is but a short step, in mighty spirits, from humiliation to discord, and Sybil soon called in the whole force of her dignity, and conjured up a smile of as much asperity as the child's. "'No,' she exclaimed, "'it is not among my cast-off ornaments. I mistook it for the similitude of true affection, of generosity and manliness, and have worn it where those qualities deserve to be treasured up. The picture was produced from its pretty hiding-place, and carelessly tendered to him. "'You will perhaps remember,' she continued, "'that there was a fellow to this picture, and that the original of it has as little inclination as other people to be made a boast of.' "'Undoubtedly, Lady Sybil, it was my intention to make you perfectly easy on that point.' The little jewel was removed coldly from his breast, and seemed to reproach him as it parted, for it had the same mournful smile with which Sybil sat for it when he was preparing for the wars.' He gave it to her, and received his own in return, 
it was yet warm from its sweet depository, and the touch of it thrilled to his soul, but he was determined for once to act with consistency. As he closed the door he distinguished a faint sob, and a feeling of self-reproach seemed fast coming over him. But then his honour! Was he to endure the possibility of being triumphed over by such an eternal blockhead as Sir Lubin of the Golden Dale? Sybil made her appearance in the drawing-room soon after him, in her riding-dress. Her manner was cold and distant, and she heard him feign business at home without condescending to notice it, only that there was a fever on her cheek which spoke an unwanted tumult of feeling. Her horse was at the door, and Sir Lubin was ready to escort her down. As she took leave of her cousin they were both haughty, and both their hands trembled. In a minute she was seen winding through the old avenue. Sir Lubin, who was observed poking his head from his shoulders with all the grace of a goose in a basket, was evidently saying tender things, and altogether looking cruelly like a dangerous rival. The child drew his breath through his teeth, as though they had been set on edge, and moved from the window like a spirit turned out of paradise. Sir Lubin did not find his ride very satisfactory. He discovered that it was a fine evening, made a clever simile about Lady Sybil's cheek and a poppy, and another about her cruelty and a bramble. But they had little or no effect. She answered no when she ought to have said yes, looked bewildered when he asked her opinion, and in fact, as he poetically expressed it, was extracting honey from the flowers of her imagination. "'Will he indeed have the heart to leave me thus?' said Sybil to herself, unkind, ungrateful, to take my little treasure from me, the sole companion of my bosom, the witness of all my tears I have shed for him, the comforter of all my doubts of his fidelity. It is gone for ever. I can never stoop to receive it back. I never will forgive him, no, never, that is, if he is really gone.' And really, when she returned, he was gone. Sybil, however, would not persuade herself that it was not his intention to return, and every night had to take her pride to task for looking out upon the road all the day. Perhaps he would write, and she stole away, as heretofore alone, to meet the tardy post a mile off. There were letters for my lord, for Sir Lubin, for the Lady Jemima. No, no, I want not them, for the Lady Sybil, what for the Lady Sybil? The letters were turned over and over, and still the same deadening sound fell like a knell upon her heart. "'Nothing for the Lady Sybil!' She returned unwillingly to her company, and retired at the first opportunity, to wonder if her cousin was really in earnest, if he had really deserted her, and whether she had ever given him cause to do so. Her pride would seldom suffer her to weep, and the tears seemed swelling at her heart till each throb was a throb of pain. Sometimes she would bewilder herself with suggesting other reasons than want of inclination for his absence and for his silence. Might he not wish to return, and be prevented by his family, who had not seen him for so long, and would naturally be importune. Might he not be fearful of writing, lest the letter should fall into the hands for which it was not intended, and betray the secret which she had desired him to keep? It surely might be her own overweening caution that was afflicting her, and he might be as impatient as herself. Her imagination would begin to occupy itself in scenes until she forgot those which had really occurred, and her hand would rise fondly to her bosom to, to draw forth the semblance of her suffering cavalier, Alas! it was then that the poor Sibyl's deceptive dreams were dispersed. The picture was gone, was even now, perhaps the bosom companion of another, who pitied her with smiles, and gaily upbraided him for his falsehood. Then again would the flush of shame rush over her cheek, her maiden indignation determined to forget him, and her bewildered wits bearing themselves upon plans of teaching him that she had done so. In the meantime Sir Lubin began to congratulate himself that he had made an impression. Sybil had lost the spirit to repel his advances as she had done before, and the little which she afforded him of her company was clearly a pretty stratagem to bring him to an explanation. 
he had a great mind to be cruel in his turn, and lead her heart the dance, as he expressed it, which she had led his. But then she was very pale, and might have a fit of illness. On the evening when he resolved to make her happy, Sibyl indeed received a letter, but it was from her lover's sister. It was full of the gay rattle which usually characterized the correspondence of hearts which have never known sorrow. But it was other news that Sibyl looked for. She told through lively descriptions of fetes and finery and flirtations, scarcely knowing what she read, till at last her eyes glanced upon the name she sought. She stopped to breathe ere she proceeded, and then Child Wilful was gone too, and paying violent attentions to Lady Blanche. She tore the letter calmly into little strips. Her lips were compressed with beautiful but stern and desperate determination. That night Sir Lubin made his proposals, and in the delirium of fancied vengeance Sybil answered she knew not what. It was not long after that that the child was returning sadly home from the Lady Blanche. She was very beautiful, but, oh, she had not the speaking glance of Sybil. She was lofty and high-minded, but it was not the sweet pride that fascinated while it awed. It was the aspiring woman, and not the playful and condescending seraph. She was accomplished, but they were the accomplishments approved by the understanding rather than the heart, the methodical work of education, and stored up for display. But Sybil was accomplished by heaven. Her gifts were like the summer breezes which sported around him, wild, exquisite, and mysterious, which were the same whether wasted on the desert or wafting delight to the multitude. She was a lovely line of poetry in a world of prose. She was a blossom dropped from paradise to shame all the flowers of the earth. Oh, but Sybil was false. And, oh, again, it was just possible he might be mistaken. He was sadly bewildered. He had another bad headache and was strongly of opinion that it was not the way to forget Sybil to put her in competition with other people. He hardly liked to confess it to himself, but he was not quite sure that, if he had any excuse which would not compromise his dignity, he would turn his horse's head toward the hall, and suffer the fiends which were tormenting him to drive him at their own pace. It happened that such excuse was not far distant. He had no sooner alighted at home than he was presented with a hasty note which had been some days awaiting him from Sybil's mother, inviting him— a film came over his eyes, and the pulsation of his heart was paralyzed, inviting him to what he knew would give him great pleasure, Sybil's wedding. Should he send an excuse and stay at home and prove that he did not care about it? Or should he plunge headlong into their revelry and spare neither age nor sex of the whole party? No matter, he would consider it on his way. He gave his steed the spur, as though the good animal had been Sir Lubin himself, and set out to cool his blood and shake his wits into their places by a moonlit gallop of a hundred miles. The morning was far advanced when he came within sight of the hall. He was almost exhausted, and the preparations for festivity upon the fine slope of the chase came over his soul with sickness and dismay. The high blood of his poor animal was barely sufficient to answer the feeble urging of its rider, and the slow stride, which was, which was accompanied by a deeper sob, seemed fast flagging to a standstill. The child felt that he was too late. He inquired of a troop of merrymakers round a roasting ox, and found that the wedding cavalcade had set off for the church. He looked down on the hilt of his sword. He was still in time for vengeance, still in time to cut short the bridegroom's triumph, to disappoint the anticipations of spirits of fury, were there none to inspire a few minutes' vigour into his fainting steed. The steed toiled on as though he had possessed the burning heart of his master. Troops of peasant girls, dressed fantastically, and waving garlands on either side of the road, soon told him that he was near the scene of the sacrifice. They had received a sheep-faced duck from the head of the blushing Sir Lubin, a sprawling wave of his long arm, thrust in all the pride of silver and satin from the window of his coach and six. They had beheld the fevered and bewildered loveliness of the Lady Sybil, looking among the bridesmaids, intense as a planet amid its satellites. 
and were all in ecstasies that if possible increased his agony. Another lash, another bound, and he turned the corner which brought him full upon the elm-embowered church, surrounded by the main body of the May-day multitude, and a string of coaches which displayed all the arms in the country. He sprang from his horse and dashed through them like a meteor. The party were all standing before the altar, and he staggered and restrained his steps to hear how far the ceremony had proceeded. There was a dead silence, and all eyes were fixed upon Sybil, who trembled, as it seemed, too much to articulate. "'More water!' said someone in a low voice. "'She is going to faint again!' Water was handed to her, and the clergyman repeated, "'Wilt thou take this man to be thy wedded husband?' Sybil said nothing, but gasped audibly. Her father looked more troubled, and Sir Lupin opened his mouth wider and wider. The question was repeated, but still Sybil spoke not. It was pronounced a third time. Sybil shook more violently and uttered an hysterical scream. "'Oh, merciful heaven!' she exclaimed. "'It is impossible! I cannot! I cannot!' Her astonished lover sprang forward and received her fainting form in his arms. A glance at each other's countenance was sufficient to explain all the sufferings, to dissipate all the resentment. Concealment was now out of the question, and their words broke forth at the same instant. "'Oh, faithless! How could you drive me to this dreadful extremity?' "'Sweet Sybil, forgive, forgive me. I will atone for it by such penitence, such devotion, as the world never saw.' "'By Jove!' exclaimed the bridegroom. "'But I do not like this.' "'By my word,' added the Lady Jemima, "'but here is a new lover.' "'By mine honour," responded the Lady Bridget, "'but he is an old one.' "'By my word and honour, too,' continued the Lady, "'something else. I suspected it long ago.' "'And by my grey beard,' concluded the old Lord, "'I wish I had done so, too. "'Look you, Sir Lubin, Sybil is my only child, "'and must be made happy her own way. "'I really thought she had been pining and dying for you, "'but since it appears I was mistaken, "'why, e'en let us make the best of it. "'You can be bridesman still.' though you cannot be bridegroom. And who knows, but in our revels to-night you may find a lady less liable to change her mind. Salubin did not understand this mode of proceeding, and would have come to high words but for the peculiar expression in Child Wilful's eye which kept them bubbling in his throat. He could by no means decide upon what to say. He gave two or three pretty considerable hymns, but he cleared the road in vain, for nothing was coming, and so at last he made up his mind to treat the matter with silent contempt. He bowed to the company with a haughty dive, kicked his long sword as he turned between his legs, and strode, or rather rode, out of the church as fast as his dignity would permit. The crowd on the outside, not being aware of what had passed within, and taking it for granted that it was all right that the bridegroom on such occasions should go home alone, wished him joy very heartily and clamorously, and the six horses went off at a long trot, which was quite grand. Sybil and her cavalier looked breathlessly for what was to come next. "'The wedding feast must not be lost,' said the old lord. "'Will nobody be married?' Sybil was again placed at the altar, and in the room of Sir Lubin was handed the chevalier Wilful. "'Wilt thou take this man for thy wedded husband?' demanded the priest. Sybil blushed, and still trembled. But her faintings did not return, and if her voice was low when she spoke the words, "'I will,' it was distinct and musical as the clearest note of the nightingale. End of section 2